I don't consider the argument that I shouldn't exist as valid as the argument that I should and do. <laughs> um, and so uh, I'm bringing some pretty clear judgments to that. But my point is not like, oh, trans people are less objective. My point is that nobody is objective on such a question. And if you think that you are, it's probably because you haven't thought about it as deeply or as hard as somebody who's being confronted with assaults on their own humanity more routinely. Hello, and welcome to Freelance Pod. My name's Sachandrika Chakrabarti, and I'll be your host. Freelance Pod is all about how the internet has revolutionised work. Each week, I'll speak to someone working in a creative field and ask them, how their industry has moved from an analogue to a digital age, or how the internet has invented their job. If you like what we're talking about in the podcast, please do get involved on social. You can find Freelance Pod on Instagram as at FreelancePod, on Twitter as at Freelance underscore pod underscore. There's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod, and you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. This episode's guest is Lewis Raven-Wallace. And we really start with a story two years ago when he was fired from his job in American public media on a radio program called Marketplace. And he was fired because he wrote a blog post called Objectivity's Dead, and I'm okay with it. And this is really about Lewis's reaction to Donald Trump's inauguration and how journalism should deal with that. So here are the four main points that he makes in the blog post. One, neutrality isn't real. Neutrality is impossible for me. And you should admit that it is for you too. As a member of a marginalised community, I am transgender, I've never had the opportunity to pretend that I can be neutral. Second point. It matters who is making editorial decisions. I think marginalised people, more than ever now, need to be at the table shaping the stories that fact-based news media puts out. I think people crave the honesty, the uniqueness, the depth that comes out of bringing an actual perspective to our work. Three. We can and should still tell the truth and check our facts. The job of storytelling, of truth-telling, is not going away, but it is getting harder and more complex in the face of unknown data sets, lying federal leaders, Facebook algorithm dominance, and a changing but also opaque market for online news that tends to bring the foamiest of fluff to the top and confuses even the most savvy consumers. 4. Journalists should fight back. As the status quo in this country shifts, we must decide whether we're going to shift with it. It seems clear that these shifts will not benefit those of us in the industry who care about truth-telling and about holding power accountable. And in the two years, two and a bit years since then, he's gone freelance, um, he's written a book called The View From Somewhere and he's starting a podcast, which he did a huge crowdfunder for, which did well. And he's starting a podcast also called The View From Somewhere. And he's really taking apart the idea of journalistic objectivity and the idea that one group or one demographic within journalism can be objective. And he really looks at what activism can come into journalism. So he has a fascinating story covering a lot of really interesting areas. And um, let's see what he has to say. So The View From Somewhere is 
kind of a, a romp. It's kind of my romp through the history of quote unquote objectivity in US journalism. And I kind of pick out a series of moments that shed light for me on where did this idea of objectivity come from? And then right from the get go, as it started to emerge, who were the people who stood outside of it or challenged it or said, you know, I'm not quote unquote objective in that way. And that's okay. And sort of just pulling back and and revealing that there's no golden age in the past that we, we need to go back to right now. There's no time period when journalists were really fair and neutral. You know, the, the, the period people are referring to when, um, when they sort of vaguely refer to the golden age of journalism was a period when, um, black people and women and, you know, immigrants were still essentially not even allowed to work in newsrooms as journalists. So, you know, fair to whom, neutral for who, I mean, we don't need to go back there. Right. And so the book is both sort of an adventure through that history, looking at these, uh, non-objective journalists who were telling the stories of abolitionism and of resistance to Jim Crow, like Ida B. Wells and lynching journalists who were labor organizers and who were, um, um, you know, organizing labor unions among journalists were targeted as non-objective, um, journalists. And then the LGBTQ press, um, lots of sort of small presses that, uh, that represented, specific racial and ethnic communities and identities. Uh, many of these have stood outside of kind of the mainstream objective framework and advanced really complicated and I think important um, critiques of it. And I think in this moment when people are feeling this sort of fear about how do we decide what news to trust and how do we decide um, whom to look to, that it's actually helpful to look back and realize oh, that question has always been there. It's just taking a different form today. But journalism has always been in the U.S. in this kind of um, raucous tumble of you know push and pull between uh, different value systems, different political ideologies, and different business models that have incentivized certain ways of working. And so objectivity really emerged out of a shift in the, in the business model for journalism, um, not just a shift in attitudes among individual journalists. Um, and so the view from somewhere tells those stories. It tells those stories through a series of kind of, um, anecdotes and narratives about individual journalists that I came across. It's heavily focused on people whose names are not household names. Um, I wanted to talk about, um, you know, I don't, not necessarily untold stories, right? Because somebody told these stories, but stories that haven't made their way into the mainstream as much as they might have and sort of resurrect um, journalists from the past who have been left out of the official canon. Um, and the book brings us all the way up to today and looks at, you know, the role of um, white supremacy and whiteness in covering the 2016 election um, and looks at the efforts today to sort of transform media toward transform journalism towards something that is in a sense, returning to its roots as, you know, community driven, transparent about its values um, and the ways that people are making really creative use of technology today to, to do that. So it's actually hopefully an uplifting message. It is not a hand wringing book about the end of days for news media, but actually sort of saying we're in a moment of opportunity and, understanding our history can maybe help us to see the opportunity that is here. 
Well, so I started doing storytelling and, you know, zine making and stuff like that when I was in high school and I was a queer youth activist. Uh, and the primary way that I learned about trans identity and, uh, you know, gender queer and non-binary identity was through zines that were being transmitted by the male. You know, it was before internet stuff. And so it was a, um, a word of mouth and snail mail network of storytellers and media makers. And, you know, there was, I came out as trans when I was 15 or 16. And there was like one published book, you know, that was, that I was able to find and it really didn't reflect sort of my identity. And so there was an awareness from early on of the need to tell our own stories as a way to make social change and to make life possible for ourselves. Um, so I always knew that, you know, I kind of wanted to be a journalist or a storyteller. I mean, always, um, I didn't see the world of news journalism as accessible to me. And what ended up bringing me into that world was a fellowship at the public media station in Chicago, WBEZ, that was specifically geared toward community organizers. Um, and my friend, Mariam Kaba, who's a prison abolition activist in Chicago and had been a longtime friend and mentor, wrote the recommendation for me to be considered for that fellowship. And I made an audio story about my voice and, as a trans person and, and submitted that with my application and I got the fellowship and spent um, nearly a year at WBEZ working in the newsroom and was just kind of converted to the world of daily news journalism. I loved it so much more than I thought I would have. Um, and so that was how I became a full-time journalist as opposed to a um, community organizer slash storyteller, which was what I had been for many years before. So I knew because my background is very much in radio and audio that I wanted to do an audio project based on the book, The View From Somewhere. And I was able to connect with a producer named Ramona Martinez, who's done some fabulous work about the history of objectivity before for a show called Backstory, an American history show. And uh, she and I kind of plotted up together um, this idea of launching a podcast and did a Kickstarter that was, we met our initial goal in, um, on the second day, which was really surprising and wonderful, and then continued to fundraise um, to like a much larger stretch goal. And now we are in production and interviewing people and cutting tape and putting together this podcast that's going to launch in the fall alongside the book. And it's a way to tell a lot of those stories in a different format and in a format that's free and accessible, um, you know, hopefully to different audiences uh, and just like get, get these stories of marginalized journalists out in the world as much as possible. In retrospect, I think that late 2016 and early 2017 was a time period for me when I was realizing how wide the gulf was between kind of my own value system and the values of the system in which I was working. And I had been aware of that when I became a journalist. I mean, for a long time, I didn't think that I would ever be a journalist because I didn't believe in um, quote unquote objectivity. And I, you know, had kind of come into my own as a very young uh, activist, LGBTQ activist, 
in my teenage years and gotten involved with anti-racism work and, you know, spent um, most of my formative years focused on that kind of work, um, solidarity work, activism, uh, writing and, and putting stories and ideas out, but always very much from a perspective. So when I had become a daily news journalist, I set all of that aside in a sense, at least in the public sense. And I, I knew that that was the expected kind of behavior and, and cost of doing the job in a way. Um, but by, by the time it rolled around to late 2016, early 2017, I had a lot of doubts and fears and anxieties about, um, obviously for me, whether that was the right choice, but also the meaning of that choice in the context of journalism, of asking journalists to make the choice between sort of speaking out for ourselves or our communities or defending basic values like human rights or free speech, uh, choosing between that and being a journalist to me felt like kind of a false choice um, and one that perhaps the journalism industry itself needs to move beyond. And so that was what led to the blog post that I wrote called Objectivity is Dead and I'm Okay with It. That blog post drew on a lot of kind of wisdom and insight um, from a lot of different people and writers and from a long history, you know, in the U.S. particularly of black journalists and and um, black journalism standing outside of the mainstream and acting as kind of a, a moral voice, you know, during the era of slavery, during the Jim Crow era, uh, all of that, and then seeing the ways in which the LGBT press had also done that later on. Um, so that, you know, there's a long tradition of non-objective journalism out there. It wasn't an original idea, but it was a controversial one in the context of public radio where I was working at the time. And so um, I did get fired uh, after I refused to take that blog post down from my personal blog. And that um, surprised me. I was surprised by how not advanced the kind of public conversation was about the values that go into the journalism that we create um, collectively. And I felt like there was a dangerous amount of kind of moral relativism happening as we were entering into what's now being called the Trump era <laughs> in the United States. And um, I was scared, I was frustrated, and it was very much a time to kind of return to my own um, values into my community and like do a gut check and say, what is the work that I really need to be doing in the world? And so that what has emerged out of that has been both um, returning to or continuing in a way to do the kind of field reporting as a freelancer about local communities in the South that I'm passionate about covering. Uh, and then also um, shifting my work into kind of pushing more from the outside to towards um, transforming journalism um, to be more uh, anti-racist, um, more kind of conscious about human rights, civil rights, uh, issues of free speech, and kind of ad admit its own non-objectivity in order to move towards a transparent and value-driven system. So that's the reasoning behind the podcast and the book and all of that that I've been working on. Well, so I had gone home um, I, I worked an early, early morning shift. I would go in at 5 a.m. and go on usually live at 5.50 a.m. 
uh, and then do live broadcasts with David Roncaccio, the host of the Marketplace Morning Report, filing news stories. And it was all very immediate and fast. And um, after my shift ended, which is at one in the afternoon, I had posted this blog post to my personal blog, tweeted about it. Um, A couple hours later, I was at home probably like napping or something. And I got a message from my manager, my editor, who said, um, you know, the management in LA, which is where the show is headquartered, want to get on the phone with you. And so I got on the phone uh, with a number of different managers and somebody from HR who said, we're going to need you to take this blog post down. And we're also suspending you from your daily news position until you do. So don't come in tomorrow. And I was really shocked by that. I remember being on the phone with them. There were three of them. I was taking notes. Um, and as the conversation went on, I my hand that was holding the phone started to shake um, in sort of, you know, just the shock and surprise um, of... I don't know. It was like being in trouble, right? (laughs) Um, But trouble that I wasn't necessarily expecting. I knew that what I'd written would be something controversial, but I didn't know that it would be at the level of sort of a company policy violation. Um, And I suspected that there was a kind of inconsistent standard there. And that was the thing that led me to uh, make the choice to be defiant in that situation um, rather than, okay, I'll take it down, which is what my um, what various people in my life advise me to do. You know, okay, I'll take it down. I'll be here. I'll keep my job. I'll argue for this stuff internally. Um, I think the double standard just like got at something in me that said, you know, this isn't, this doesn't feel right. And this isn't who you are. Um, in this moment, you know, 10 days after Donald Trump has been inaugurated as the president to, um, kind of be bullied in this particular way as like the only transgender person working in this newsroom and um, in a place where not everyone was facing sort of the same consequences for opinions that might be shared on social media. So um, because of that perception, I felt like it was important to stand up to it and say, no, I don't think that this is a fair interpretation of this company policy and I don't want to be targeted like this. And that led pretty quickly to me being fired. I was like, why don't we just have this conversation out in the open, you know, tell everybody that you think I'm wrong. That's great. But let's just do it like publicly, you know, he's wrong. And we, you know, this is a company policy and um, let's have the debate because I think for people who are really, a lot of people are struggling, right. With issues of trust in the media and, one of the ways to, I think, give people comfort and give people a sense of connection to us as news media is to be transparent about who we are. So you have this transgender reporter at a national show. Is this person bothered at all by the Trump administration or afraid of the Trump administration's policy toward trans people? You know, of course. And that's such an identifiable emotion for like other trans people, right? And I'm not saying every piece I needed to do needed to be about that or needed to be some opinion piece about the Trump administration's policies. Not at all. But for people to know that I'm a human and I'm having doubts and I have complexity, I think is ultimately 
a good thing in terms of media trust. So the idea of carrying on a transparent conversation was precisely what I proposed to my employers in the in the email that I wrote to them before they fired me. And I said, you know, I'm sure we can find somebody here who would be willing to publicly disagree with me. And then we could be the radio show that like had that conversation that everyone was wondering whether or not we were having <laughs> um, about what it means to be journalists and particularly journalists from marginalized or oppressed communities in the Trump era. Uh, but the conversation the public conversation played out in a very different way that was more oppositional. I think a lot of the media who covered it would have liked me to be even more oppositional for my employers, but I really, you know, I was fired over a policy, right? But the underlying issues that it raises were what I wanted the conversation to focus on. So it's not a personal thing between me and anybody, you know? I mean, I think I felt like it was urgently important to kind of expose the two-faced nature of this conversation about diversity in newsrooms. Um, on the one hand, a lot of newsrooms, particularly the kind of liberal-leaning ones, like your NPR or Marketplace, haven't expressed value of diversity and representation. And then on the other hand, these same newsrooms are still clinging to a notion of objectivity that essentially says if you advocate for anything or are an activist for anything other than the status quo as it is, then you can't be a real journalist. And it creates a catch-22 because, of course, the reason that places aren't diverse isn't just because people of color and you know, queer people, um, you know, working class people don't want to be journalists or don't want to have that power and access, right? It's because of structural barriers, structural inequalities, and everything ranging from the behavior of hiring managers and newsroom directors and their perceptions to the work environment. And so without, you know, as well as access to this sort of educational pipeline and opportunities, I mean, there's a bunch of different levels, right? But they're structural. And so if you can't talk about the structures and you can't critique the structures and you can't um, advocate for changing those structures, you, you really can't get diversity. Um, diversity is an outcome, right, uh, of these other kinds of changes that need to happen. And so there's a real catch-22 if nobody can be a quote-unquote real journalist or a real editor if they're an advocate in any way because it means that all the advocates are going to be overworking in some other industry or some other sector to make that change happen. So journalism ends up sort of maintaining itself as this um, white, male-dominated male uh, environment, even when it claims that it doesn't intend to. And I felt very um, impatient with that kind of doublespeak and what I perceived as the hypocrisy in that, you know, we want quote unquote diversity, but we don't want any um, structural or sort of systemic change. Um, I think that puts everyone into this mode of kind of intellectual dishonesty and denial, you know, trans people didn't get to a place of being visible as journalists by never being activists and being silent on things. That's just that it would have never happened that way. That's impossible. That's not how social change happens. But if you want trans representation, 
you need social change. So, you know, and I, I think a similar parallel can be drawn around issues of racial justice and racial equity. People have to demand those things for them to happen. They don't just happen. I think I would point to a similar to a similar parallel around Me Too and the movement to end sexual harassment and sexual assault and to highlight workplace sexual harassment and workplace sexual assault that, you know, it's still true that newsrooms have policies like you can't um, report on issues around sexual assault. If you like volunteer at your local um, sexual assault survivor support clinic, there are these real barriers to the very people who could make change around these issues, sort of being in a newsroom, actually doing that. And I'm aware that this raises really complicated questions about conflicts of interest in journalism and how close should you be to the story and and all that kind of stuff. Um, But I think that like cracking open that conversation is the only way to, to get there. We have to be able to have the conversation to really consider the consequences of not having it. And that's one of the funny things about dealing with President Trump in particular is that he hasn't been shy about his dislike for some of the kind of basic tenets of freedom of information and free speech that are openly valued by a lot of journalists. Um, That's a value system. Maybe not every journalist (laughs) abides by it, but, you know, believing in um, First Amendment rights and, um, and and also a level of sort of information and access when it comes to government, um, I think is a stance that a lot more journalists are comfortable taking than, um, say, a stance in favor of trans rights. And so when I talk about certain identities being political, trans people are like a topic of debate. Should we be employable? Should we able be able to, you know, to live, essentially, to live in the um, genders that we identify as and to live uh, safely and not in um, misery and fear? And that's a debate that's being debated. And, and um, obviously the debate has to happen for things to shift. Um, but this idea that you can be truly objective and just sort of stand off to the side of a debate like that without making any judgment calls is a very, very privileged one, right? Because obviously for myself, I don't consider the argument that I shouldn't exist as valid as the argument that I should and do. (laughs) Um, And so uh, I'm bringing some pretty clear judgments to that. But my point is not like, oh, trans people are less objective. My point is that nobody is objective on such a question. And if you think that you are, it's probably because you haven't thought about it as deeply or as hard as somebody who's being confronted with assaults on their own humanity more routinely. People who are facing sort of violence, whether it be, you know, um, verbal uh, or physical violence against our own kind of humanity or against our own being are um, situated to have a perspective on it that I think can often actually be wider and more perceptive rather than the default understanding that it's narrower because it's more opinionated. I have a lot of allies and a lot of support, right? Like certainly one area has been that when I was fired, um, 
nationally, trans people, trans communities, other trans journalists really, really rallied around me and um, really expressed, I think, a very clear understanding of like the message that I was carrying and a clear understanding of how of why someone like me would make a decision and say, you know, it's not worth kind of compromising my own um, viewpoint or my own humanity um, to remain in this like national journalism position. Trans people are being asked to make those kinds of choices all the time. Right. And part of being trans is like choosing a harder path, um, living out what might be in certain ways, at the surface, a harder life in order to like live your truth. Um, so I think that there was a lot of identification with that. Um, another important group, and of course not across the board, but a lot of journalists of color, a lot of particularly women of color um, and, and younger journalists you know, reached out to me and just said, Hey, like what, you know, what you said is, is true or is really resonant for me. And, um, I appreciate it because it tells me that I can still be a real journalist and also stand up for my community. And I've gotten a different message, you know, in journalism school or wherever else. Um, I also heard from a lot of people who had left journalism or left public media in particular because it was so, uh, racist or transphobic, um, and who had seen sort of firsthand the, silent exclusionary practices that aren't being acknowledged in those spaces. And so in that sense, there was a ton of allyship and allegiance. And I would say the strongest sort of public facing allyship in terms of like other, you know, more high profile journalists who said things um, were almost all uh, people of color. Um, so, you know, do with that what you will. There were also people, of, journalists of color in the public media system who really, really strongly disagreed with the stance that I took. So it's not like an across the board thing. But I think um, I think that allyship requires risk taking, right? And requires like using your voice, even when it might inconvenience you. It's like if we only used our voices when it was totally convenient and comfortable, we would never... Um, change anything right things change by stirring the pot and so I think some people saw me and they're like oh he's stirring the pot you know and I was like uh yeah and I have the privilege in a sense to do that like I I'm going to be able to continue my career as a journalist one way or another I have a safety net financially that allows me to survive this scenario of having been fired um I uh, have gotten to a place where I am speaking from a national platform. A lot of people leave or are pushed out or are fired from their jobs before for, from their journalism jobs before being able to access that platform. And so I think I saw all of those things as aspects of, um, of privilege, right. Um, but also a privilege that at that sort of key point could be sort of leveraged to say, okay, we need to have a conversation about institutional racism and, you know, public media. And it's not, I'm not the first person who's pushed for that conversation at all. I'm sort of the last person in a way, right? It's usually people of color and it's often people who are in positions like um, not of leadership and, and who may be excluded from leadership positions for that activism. So feeling very aware that like there's, um, 
there's a risk taking that's also cushioned by my own privilege in terms of like speaking out about anything at, at any given time, you know, I'm still relatively employable, maybe not in public media, but, um, as a journalist and, um, but I think for me, it's like, if I'm always in this individual mindset of protecting my career, I could really lose track of my moral compass. And that's a very personal thing. I'm not saying anyone else should do any other falling on some particular sword, but um, that's how I think of it. I have very little patience for the kind of hand-wringing about, oh, with digital media, just anybody can be a journalist and, you know, anybody can tell their own story. It's like, well, for everyone who is outside of that process of gatekeeping for the previous several hundred years in U.S. history, um, that's a good thing. <laughs> like suddenly everyone has access to these tools. That's amazing. It's great. And obviously, you know, the digital transition has come with some really severe consequences for, in particular, local um, newspaper reporting. But the aspect of it that sort of um, blows everything open in terms of whose voices can be out there, I think, is incredible and something that um, has had a huge effect on the sort of pressure that mainstream media feel to better represent um, marginalized people's stories. An example of this that I write about in the book, and I, I was just interviewing somebody about for the podcast, is Black Lives Matter, um, both the hashtag and the activist movement. Um, I just interviewed a woman named Janetta Elzey, who was one of the primary kind of activist journalists on the ground in Ferguson. She's from St. Louis. She was there on the streets in Ferguson the day that Michael Brown was killed in 2014 when her friends texted her and were like, there's a protest going on, come over. And she was there every day from then on. And she was making use of um, Instagram videos and tweeting about it. And um, she was one of the people who initially got the story out across the world about the movement in Ferguson. And, you know, she ended up being followed by hundreds of thousands of people on Twitter and becoming kind of a significant media figure in and of herself. But she was also in the protests alongside her friends. She was 25 years old. And what she was saying to me in this interview just the other day, she was like, I don't even know without Instagram or Twitter, if like all of us who were there would, would be alive. I mean, the impunity with which they expected the Ferguson police and, you know, the, the police force to act um, was so total um, that young black people in the city were afraid of like dying at the hands of police. Um, but because they had Instagram and Twitter and were putting out their side of the story and here's what actually happened at this protest from our perspective, you know, and the police came at us with tear gas and riot gear Um they were able to be believed and to have a platform and to really sort of fundamentally shift the media coverage of the whole situation that, you know, where 10, 15 years ago, Michael Brown might have died with very little fanfare. And instead, his death sort of set off this whole movement because people had access to these tools to like 
spread around a version of the story that wasn't the official version, that wasn't the police version. Um, and journalists had been complicit in for a long time in kind of repeating the police versions of stories about um, the deaths of Black people at the hands of police, Black Lives Matter, the way that Black Lives Matter used social media was able to like push journalists um, out of that complicity and into more thorough coverage and closer to the truth of some of these stories. And that's exactly what Janetta Elsie and these other activists in Ferguson were consciously trying to do. Controversial take, but I think anyone can be a journalist. <laughs> you know, I really do. And but that doesn't mean that I don't believe in journalistic rigor and sort of a variety of different skill sets. It's just that there's a variety of different skill sets. Like, you know, some of us maybe have the skills of like dealing with complex data sets or um, interviewing tough sources, or, you know, getting responses from people who are oppositional or kind of cutting through the BS propaganda that a politician is giving you. Those are skills that people develop through the practice of, of journalism. Um, and I think those are real good skills. And I also think that like posting videos about things that are happening on the ground in your community is a form of journalism. Recording audio stories about your neighbors is a form of journalism. And the tools for all of that are you know, more and more available to more and more people. You can do it with a cell phone. And I think that's wonderful. And then the question becomes both like the the skills and also the um, motivations of sort of the people making stories. And there are a wide different range of motivations, right? There's a lot of right wing journalism in the United States um, that is immune to facts <laughs> um, and doesn't sort of care very much whether it's purveying um, things that are true. There's also left-wing journalism that's immune to facts. You know, we get these conspiracy theory, whack job things from multiple sides. And, um, and I think what's important to debate there is not like, is it journalism or is it not, or who can be a journalist? And, you know, not to like sort of try to retreat to some sort of gatekeeping mode where we make sure that nobody is allowed to be a journalist unless they have taken the, the, all the fact-checking classes and, um, you know, been as objective and unbiased in their lives as possible and so on. But to, to actually address the more fundamental question of media literacy and access. How are people getting this information? How are they evaluating whether it's good information and whether it's true? And how can we sort of make social change in that area? So, you know, I think that the skills and tools of journalism being widely accessible is just, is a great thing. And I want that to continue. And I want more and more people to have um, the possibility of access to a voice. And at the same time, I think the like public understanding of what journalism is and how it works um, is pretty low and that the more that we can do to sort of change and improve that, the better the like synchronicity will be between increased access to those tools and then what we're doing with them and how we're responding to it. Um, there are entities that benefit a lot from the spread of fake news and propaganda um, and that's unfortunate. But that doesn't mean that we should say, you know, no more citizen journalists. We all need a certification. That is a uh, sort of ridiculous authoritarian response to a problem that is um, cultural and technological and very much of our time. 
Well, it was a real shock just even initially when I stopped doing those early morning shifts and I could just sleep. <laughs> I realized how much I needed sleep. And so, um, you know, life is great now. Like I live in North Carolina. I'm looking out at basically a forest from where I'm talking to you. Um, I get to walk my dog in between things and spend a lot of time outside and make my own schedule. And I work on a really disciplined and rigorous schedule on a lot of different projects, but it is indeed great to be the person in charge of like what those projects are going to be and um, to be choosing my own path. It's a lot of pressure, but it's totally worth it. So thanks to Lewis for sharing his story with us. He makes loads of really important and interesting points. And um, I certainly felt that I learned a lot. So look out for his book and his podcast, which are both coming out soon. They are both called The View From Somewhere, and they're going to tackle the history of objectivity and how objectivity works in the media. And um, yeah, I'm going to be looking out for both of those. So just so you know, I'm going to be away next week. Um, I'll be visiting Perugia for the International Journalism Festival. So if you're going to be there, um, give me a shout so you can get me on the podcast Twitter at freelance underscore pod underscore. And I'm going to take yeah, a week off the podcast, but I'll be back the week after with more exciting guests. Well, that's it for another episode of Freelance Pod. If you enjoyed what we talked about in this episode, please do get involved on social. You can find Freelance Pod on Instagram as at Freelance Pod. On Twitter as at Freelance underscore pod underscore. There's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod. And you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. That's it for now. Speak to you again soon. Goodbye.